Welcome to a new episode of History Over Coffee, a podcast brought to you by the History Department here at Marshall University. Here we strive to bring to you a 10-minute recap of the significance of this day in history. I'm Dr. Manami Guha, and today I am joined by Dr. Laura Michelle Dina, and who is making her debut in the podcast world. Uh, welcome, Dr. Dina. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And today she's going to tell us all about the significance of November 17th and why it's crucial in history of England, would you say, Dr. Dina? Absolutely. The history of England, the history of women, in some ways, the history of America and really everywhere where the British Empire ever existed. Wow, awesome. I can't <laughs> wait to get started on this. Okay, so before you get to November 17th, could you sort of lay out the lay out the scenario of the political climate of England at the time and then what actually happened on this day? Absolutely. So I would describe the political climate at this time in England as very uncertain. There was mm -hmm. a great deal of instability. So mm -hmm. part of this came about because of one of the most famous English kings or infamous Henry VIII. He mm -hmm. had introduced a great deal of religious changes uh, beginning uh, when he introduced the act of supremacy and broke away from papal control and mm -hmm. established himself as the head of the Church of England. And he was essentially pretty conservative. Like he really just wanted to do what he wanted to do, which in this case was divorce his first wife to marry his second, who ended up being Elizabeth's mother. But he sort of unleashed all these questions about religion and it you know sort of unwittingly like opened up um, the doors for all these different kinds of religious reforms. So everyone in England kind of has a different idea of what this Church of England should be. Mm -hmm. And that's compounded by this very unstable succession. Mm -hmm. So uh, Henry had three children who survived him. Uh, his first successor is his son, Edward, who becomes king at only nine years old. And he um, did not live very long. He's very sickly, but he was committed to um, a reform to Protestant Church of England. Mm -hmm. And then when he died, though, um, after a brief um, attempt uh, by a, a Protestant cause to take over, it goes to his older sister, Mary, who was very Catholic and who wanted to bring England back under the control of the Pope. But Mary, by the time she inherits the throne, she's in her late 30s. She's not married. She doesn't have any children. And her closest heir is her younger sister, her much younger sister, Princess Elizabeth, mm -hmm. who's kind of a dark horse. No one is quite sure exactly where she fits on the religious spectrum, but they know she's not too radical in any direction. So there's a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen when Mary dies and who's going to get the throne and how this is going to affect not only politics, but the religious situation. Mm hmm. Wow. And so, okay, so just to sort of set the context, what is the time period we're talking about? Okay, so this is 1558. That is the last year that Mary rules. By that time, Mary has actually gotten married. She has mm -hmm. married her cousin, uh, Philip II, who is Spanish, very Catholic, and also 
uh, in favor of the Pope, but she has no, she hasn't had any children. Mm-hmm. Uh, so her sister Elizabeth, who's now about 25, is mm-hmm. her closest heir. But at the same time, Mary is not sure she wants Elizabeth to rule after her. And in fact, has had her imprisoned several times in the tower. And oh, wow. Not rest. Uh-huh. Wow. So then November 17, 1558, did you say? Yes. Okay. That what is- happens? What happens that on that is day? the day when Mary dies. Um, okay. And it's a sad day for Mary, who is actually a really interesting figure in her own right and very much maligned in history. We should do mm-hmm. another podcast on her. Oh, we will. But sure. For Elizabeth, uh-huh. it was a glorious day because... First of all, it was the day that she uh, is no longer under house arrest. She's no longer under suspicion. She is no longer in fear of her life. But she also finds out that she is now queen, queen of England at the age of 25. Wow. Okay. Wow. That's a lot of responsibility on a 25-year-old's shoulder. Um, So, okay. So to start talking about Queen Elizabeth now, why is she famously known as the Virgin Queen? Well, she is known as the Virgin Queen because for several reasons, but chiefly, she never marries, which is mm-hmm. unusual for any ruler in this period because right. one of your chief jobs is to have an heir and secure the succession. Her mm-hmm. father's you know, all of his many, many famous marriages were all about securing the succession. And she chooses not to do that, which is a very strange choice. Right. Um, she under there's a few things going on i think okay. um she had seen so many examples growing up of uh women who, um who uh for whom marriage did not work out very well, including her mother, mm-hmm. Anne Boleyn, her, uh, who was executed before Elizabeth was even three years old. She wow. also saw um, uh, another one of her stepmothers uh, executed and mm-hmm. her final stepmother almost arrested for treason and heresy. Mm-hmm. So you can understand why she doesn't really want to put herself in that position of being married. So. Mm-hmm. As a queen, if mm-hmm. she married, then her husband might expect to be king and might expect to have more power over her. Uh, wow. And she's not really prepared to do that. Mm-hmm. But Elizabeth is also very savvy. She doesn't marry, but as long as she's not married, she could always be married. So she uses her unmarried status as kind of a diplomatic tool. So she's wow. always sort of promising herself in marriage as a way of forming alliances with other countries but she never goes through with it because when she goes through with it she's limited her options but as long as she's not married no she can kind of play that forever as she gets older she also develops this rhetoric about how she is married to her kingdom and how her kingdom is more important to her than any earthly husband or any earthly child that she could have. And it's a way of using something that might be a bit of a disadvantage to her, her female gender at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a way of really turning that to her advantage, saying, you know, because I am a woman and, you know, my you know, my traditional position would be to marry and devote myself to a husband. Instead, I'm devoting myself to the people of England. Wow, that is fascinating. My God, wow. Okay, so, okay, this is a dog. I mean, she sounds 
incredibly ahead of her, of, of the time she was ruling, I would say. I don't think women really portrayed themselves in that way um so to sort of like you know extend this conversation a little bit more um you know now we consider and you talked about the you know some of the things she witnessed as a child and you know we consider the effects of childhood trauma today on development so how did elizabeth's childhood experiences do you think shaped her character Well, Elizabeth learned from a very early age how to be a survivor. So before she turns three years old, her Mm -hmm. mother is executed. Her uncle is executed. She basically loses all of her maternal family. Her Mm -hmm. father declares her illegitimate. She loses the title princess. She's demoted to Lady Elizabeth. And she's basically banished from court off to the country in the care of governesses. Now... She only uh, returns to court and begins to have a kind of sort of relationship with her father and her siblings when she's about 12 because of her last stepmother, Henry VIII's last wife, Catherine Parr, who is a very loving woman who sort of convinces the king to bring all his children together again. Mm Catherine Parr is sort of the first person who takes charge of Elizabeth's education and really treats her like a daughter. But Elizabeth witnesses Catherine almost getting arrested for heresy by her father. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, um, shortly after um, Henry dies, Elizabeth mm-hmm. goes to live with Catherine. She's about 13. And Catherine marries a man named Thomas Seymour, who she'd always been in love with even before she married the king Mm -hmm. and at first it's like this wonderful happy family situation Catherine becomes pregnant but Thomas is very ambitious and he's a little worried that Catherine will die in childbirth Mm -hmm. and he'll lose his connection to the royal family so he starts paying attention to Elizabeth and okay yeah enacting these very sort of predatory behaviors Uh um, Eventually, Catherine sends Elizabeth away. Uh, Thomas Seymour actually uh, is accused of treason. He's taken to the tower and executed. And Elizabeth, aged 14, is put Uh under interrogation by her brother's government to see if she had colluded in any of this treason. So she undergoes weeks of interrogation um, by, you know, these very trained investigators who are trying right. to find out if she was guilty or not. And right. she survives it. Um, this goes on for years until under uh, her sister Mary's rule, she's continually arrested again and under investigation. So her whole childhood and adolescence, mm-hmm. she is under suspicion. She has to be really careful and really guarded. And that's an awful way for a kid to grow up, but it uh-huh. is what made her an incredibly strong ruler. She never let herself be vulnerable. She was always thinking, you know, five steps ahead of everybody. And she uh-huh. knew that the only people she could place her trust in, you know, uh-huh. had to be just absolutely um, intelligent and loyal. Wow, that's a lot for a child of 14, you're right, to go through. And um, okay, so all of those experiences shape you know, play a pivotal role in the way she rules over England. Um, so, you know, what do you think her achievements were as the queen? Well, 
So she was extremely educated. And Mm -hmm. I think that she uh, gave England and the English court uh, just this luster of um, intellect. Um, She was known for her skill in languages, not just, um, you know, spoken languages, but also Latin. There's a Mm -hmm. really great story where uh, this Polish ambassador comes to her court and he scolds her. Um, and you know, ambassadors, you know, this was sort of an official meeting. She right. thought he was gonna like give her this flattering speech, and instead he scolds her and just completely off the cuff in Latin, she just gives him this like delightful, um, you know, cutting reply. And wow. everybody who hears about this in her court and throughout Europe, just talk about how witty she is. She was also uh-huh. a patron of the arts and theater. Um, you know, she was a huge patron of um, of Shakespeare, of course, mm-hmm. and invites him to court uh, to perform um, Twelfth Night plays. Uh, she had an amazing glittering uh, court. It was known for its fashion and its color. Uh, she also um, is known for... Um, what she does in terms of English religion. So Mm -hmm. one of the things I think that's really innovative about her is that unlike both her sister and her brother, Mm -hmm. she really wanted there to be a certain amount of freedom in religion. She Mm -hmm. even said she didn't want to create windows into men's souls. She wanted there to be some conformity, but basically people could do what they wanted privately. Unfortunately, she's thwarted in that by... um, forces kind of beyond her control. There Mm -hmm. were so many uprisings in her reign in favor of um, her Catholic cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, Mm -hmm. that as she gets older, she's forced to crack down on on religious freedom. And Mm -hmm. at the time, you know, that was difficult for a lot of people, but it's also, it also helped shape the way the Church of England developed. um, Mm -hmm. And the kinds of services um, and prayers that you know still exist today. Mm-hmm. Um, she also was known for her diplomatic relationships with other rulers from, you know, I mean, French rulers mm-hmm. to Moroccan rulers to Ivan the Terrible. So I think um, probably more than any other Tudor monarch and possibly any other monarch until maybe Queen Victoria, mm-hmm. she really just uh, shaped sort of the color and texture of how we think of England. Wow, that is so interesting. Wow. That, thank you so much, Dr. Tina, for that very, very interesting, fascinating take into Queen Elizabeth and, you know, her contribution, uh, everything that went into making her the queen that she became. Um, thank you so much for that recap. Uh, if this episode has intrigued your interest, do search for History Over Coffee on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other place where you source your podcast from. Please make sure you subscribe to our channel so you never miss out when a new episode drops. If you are interested in working on Tudor and I also believe Dr. Dina Stewart England, right? If you're interested, 
medieval and ancient too medieval okay medieval england if you're interested then you know if you want to work with dr dina uh reach out to us on our history homepage uh at www.marshall.edu backslash history backslash and yeah do reach out to her if you want to work with her and we will see you on the next podcast thank you so much for listening